Good morning, everyone. So, like Scott said, we're going to be reading from John chapter 7, verses 14 to 52. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, How did this man get such learning without having studied? Jesus answered, My teaching is not my own. It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honour for himself, but he who works for the honour of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you are all astonished. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Now if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, Isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is, speaking publicly, and they are not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he is from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. But I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this, they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his time had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, When the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I will go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go, that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live, scattered among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Christ. Still others asked, How can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Amen. Uh, friends, let's bow in prayer, shall we? Father, we want to thank you for your word. And we thank you especially for the Lord Jesus that... Uh, uh, because of him that uh, and your spirit that we can have streams of living water flowing in and through us. Father, we pray for uh, your spirit to be at work in our minds and our hearts even now, that as we hear from your word, that we would be changed by it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
How did this man get such learning? We know where this man comes from. When the Christ comes, will he perform more miraculous signs than this man? Where does this man intend to go? Surely this man is the prophet. No one ever spoke the way that this man does. These are all references to Jesus in John chapter 7, uh, where in our passage today, Jesus is only ever referred to as being this man, which can have different meanings, can't it, depending on who's saying it, depending on how it's said and why it's said. I mean, uh, this man can make Jesus seem like somewhat of an outsider uh, or someone who's mysterious. Or it could mean something very different to that. It could mean that he's someone special. This man as opposed to all other men. Or to call Jesus this man could be hostile towards him. This man, who is he? What are we to make of him? And what do we do with him? In John chapter 7, uh, when Jesus visited the city of Jerusalem, these were the kind of issues that puzzled and angered people about Jesus. Uh, last Sunday, if you're with us, you, you'll know that uh, we saw that in the previous chapter that the crowds that had been flocking around Jesus started to dwindle. They dwindled because of his teaching, that they found it hard to accept. And so his brothers urged him to go to Jerusalem. It was the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. The city would be filled with people that would be bursting and bustling with people, people whom Jesus could impress and make a name for himself by performing his miracles. Jesus went to Jerusalem, but that was far from the reason for which he went. In fact, if you look at verse 14, if you've got your Bibles open in front of you, in verse 14, Jesus, we're told, missed half of the festival, for it was only halfway through the feast that he went up to the temple and showed himself to the world, not to do miracles, but to teach. And here is when the questions began to flow. Not questions about, his, about the scriptures, not inquiring minds wanting to know more about God, but rather questions about him. Uh, you can see there that the Jews were amazed, writes John, and asked, how did this man, this man, get so much learning, get such learning without having studied? And they knew that Jesus was just an itinerant preacher, an ordinary carpenter by trade, and yet his command of Scripture and his ability to teach Scripture was masterful. And so was his ability to turn an obvious question about his theological training into a challenge which would pierce their hearts. In verse 16, Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. 
It comes from him who sent me. If anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. He who speaks on his own does so to gain honour for himself, but he who works for the honour of the one who sent him is a man of truth. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? You are demon-possessed, the crowd answered. Who is trying to kill you? Wow. I mean, uh, this starts with a question about Jesus not having a theological degree and within moments they're accusing him of being demon-possessed. How did that happen so quickly? Well, because Jesus didn't need to go to theological college. His knowledge, he claims that his knowledge of God came directly from the one who sent him, God himself. More than that, if anyone genuinely wants to do God's will, that person will recognise where his teaching comes from. Friends, we know that that's true, don't we? But if anyone is genuinely seeking after God, when they hear God's word, they recognise it, don't don't they? They recognise God's voice. They understand where that word came from. But in verse 19, these Jews were not in that category. They were religious, yes, but none of them, says Jesus, keeps God's law. Otherwise... Why are they trying to kill him? That's murder. Well, they ask him, who is trying to kill you? As if Jesus is somehow deluded by a demon. Now, amongst the crowd, there were those who wanted Jesus dead. In verse 21, Jesus reminds them of a miracle which he did the last time that he was in Jerusalem, a miracle which is recorded for us in John chapter 5, a miracle about a poor man, a poor man who had been crippled, unable to move himself for 38 years until he met Jesus, who healed him with a word, who restored him, who gave him his mobility back again, who healed this man, so much so that Jesus was able to say to the man, stand up, carry your mat and walk, which he did. How remarkable is that? Can you imagine the the joy, the the thrill, the excitement, the, the wonder? And yet the Jews took issue with Jesus because he healed the man on a Sabbath. More than that, the man picked up his mat, which they considered to be working on the Sabbath. And they wanted to kill Jesus. So here in verses 21 to 24, Jesus points out their hypocrisy. Because the issue is that the religious leaders, they actually regularly and frequently work on the Sabbath. In this way, you see, Uh, There were two seemingly competing laws in this regard because the law of Moses required that a a baby born, uh, eight days after it was born, 
was to be circumcised. And that required work. But what if the eighth day was the Sabbath, which forbade work? Which law should the religious leaders obey? Well, they judged that the law requiring circumcision took precedence over the Sabbath law. But they did not make the same judgment when it came to healing a poor man who had been crippled for 38 years. Why do they not know where Jesus got his teaching from? Because they do not have a heart, a genuine heart, for God. That's why. Now, the people who asked Jesus who was trying to kill him, that may have been a genuine question, uh, that, that they were ignorant of the plot to kill Jesus because these were people perhaps who've come from out of town, pilgrims who've come from other places. But in verse 25, the Jerusalem locals in the crowd, they knew the plan. They knew what the religious leaders wanted to do and so now they have a question about the religious leaders themselves. Have a look in verse 25. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is publicly speaking and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. When the Christ comes, no one will know where he comes from. They knew that the leaders wanted to kill Jesus and so here he is, a great crowd of people, he's publicly teaching, everyone can see, the leaders are there, they're listening in and they're doing nothing about it. Why is that? Have the leaders decided that this man is the Christ? Well, that's a, an idea that the Jews in the crowd very quickly dismiss and they do so on the basis of the knowledge of their knowledge of where Jesus comes from. They knew where Jesus came from. Now, the Old Testament does say where the Christ would come from, that he would come from Bethlehem, um, and that we see in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Uh, that's not the issue. That's not what they're disputing. However, there was a popular view at the time that when the Christ appeared, that he would be unknown until the, uh, and he would just suddenly appear, uh, just before he would redeem Israel. But this man, well, they say, we know where he comes from. He, he grew up in, in, in Nazareth. His family live in Capernaum. He, he can't be the Christ because he hasn't just suddenly appeared like that. Now, it's one thing to know where Jesus comes from. It's very different to know the person who sent him. I had a friend uh, once, I still got him as a friend actually, but um, before he became a Christian, he had this, um, he was a very intelligent man, had a vast knowledge of the Bible. He'd read the Bible through three or four times and he'd retained a lot of the information and he knew so much more about, he put me to shame, but he didn't know God. He had no relationship with God. In fact, he was an enemy of God. 
In the same way, um, he did actually become a Christian, I'm pleased to say, but in the same way, in verse 28, Jesus responds to these people, sure you know me, sure you know where I come from, but you do not know the one who sent me. Now, for these Jews, that is deeply and terribly offensive. For God had revealed himself to the Jews. They were the ones, he was chosen people. They were the ones who had the knowledge of God as opposed to the pagans around. But here Jesus is saying that you do not know him. And that is true. It's exactly what they needed to hear. And it's what, in verse 30, made them so angry that they unsuccessfully tried to apprehend Jesus. Although there is a second and a different reaction in the crowd. Uh, Have a look at verse 31. Still many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, will he do more miraculous signs than this man? I think that's a good point, don't you? I mean, healing people, driving out demons, calming the storm, uh, feeding thousands of people, walking on water. Uh, I mean, what else could you want? What are you expecting the Christ to do? Would, would, Would the Christ, when he comes, would he do any more than what we've already seen? Friends, when people are confronted by the truth about Jesus, it divides people. Two people can hear the gospel message. Two people from the same family, in the same background, two people, perhaps even brothers and sisters or married to one another, can hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ proclaimed and for one it can be just rubbish, whilst for the other it can be the words of life. Jesus divides people, the truth divides people and here the crowd is divided. Sadly, in chapter 8, though, as we'll see perhaps next week, the faith of those, these believing Jews, was shown to actually be superficial, just based on the miracles and not actually based on the truth of who Jesus actually is and why he came. Their faith didn't last. But nevertheless, this talk amongst the crowd, all about Jesus, some saying he is the Christ, some saying he's not the Christ. This is not what the Pharisees wanted to hear or the chief priests. And in verse 32, it was therefore the last straw. And so along with the chief priests, the Pharisees finally decided to act and they sent the temple guards to arrest Jesus. Now, temple guards were not just your regular security guards. Um, Their job was to maintain law and order within the um, precinct of the temple and the surrounding area and also on occasions to do other things of a security nature as well. But uh, these were men who were drawn from the priestly tribe. They were Levites and they were trained in Judaism and as they too listened to Jesus his words resonated with their hearts Jesus knew his arrest warrant had been issued 
And so in verse 33, he made a bold claim about his future. Would you, would you look at that with me, please? Verse 33. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Where was this man going? Well, it's pretty clear, isn't it? He's going back to the one who sent him, to God. But these Jews, they didn't even believe that he came from God in the first place, let alone that he would actually return to God. In fact, in verses 35 to 36, they think he's planning his escape and he's making it known. They think that he's going to go to some faraway land uh, where they cannot find him, perhaps into the areas of the world where the Jews had dispersed, uh, where he would actually spread his message amongst the Greeks. Who is this man? And where is this man going? They're thinking in worldly terms. And there's a reason for that. The reason is because they have not understood the very event which they are celebrating. The Feast of Tabernacles. What was it about? In Leviticus chapter 23, each year for a period of seven days after the harvest, God's people were to um, perform certain ceremonies and sacrifices, but they were to live in tents, in temporary dwellings. It's where the word tabernacle comes from. It's an old English word meaning tent. Uh, but they were to live in tents, in, in, in tabernacles, in temporary dwellings in order to remind them of the way that God cared for them, the way that God provided for Israel after their escape from Egypt as they wandered around for 40 years in the wilderness, moving from place to place. And it came over time to symbolise God's provision of water in the desert and his promise that on one day he would pour out his life-giving water, his life-giving spirit into the hearts of men and women. Now in Jerusalem, on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, a, a large jar, a special jar, would be filled with water which was drawn from the, um, from the pool of Siloam. And that jar, large jar would then be carried in a procession through the streets, a procession which would be led by the chief priest and it would be taken to the temple where uh, trumpets uh, would resound, uh, where thousands of people would gather to watch and where the water would be poured out at the altar as a sacrifice. This was the high point of the Feast of Tabernacles on the last day. It was the climax, if you like, of this celebration of remembering how God provided for Israel and how God would one day pour out his spirit. And it's also the reason that Jesus came not just to Jerusalem, but to the world. Take a look at verse 37. 
On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And by this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. The Feast of Tabernacles is fulfilled in Jesus, who after his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, after his ascent, his return to the one who sent him, as he promised, he poured out his Holy Spirit, who brings life to the spiritual desert of our hearts. So much so, in fact, that in Acts chapter 6, as the good news about Jesus' death and resurrection spread, we told that as people uh, came to experience that living water, that even a large number of priests came to put their faith in the risen Jesus, the Christ. Now, Jesus' brothers had thought that by going to Jerusalem that he could impress people with his miracles and become a public figure. Instead, Jesus divides the people. Who is this man? Amongst the uh, crowd, there there is a variety of opinion. Opinion is, in fact, split. Some say, well, maybe he is the prophet, the one that uh, Moses said would come. Others say, no, he's the Christ. Others say, well, he couldn't be the Christ because the Christ was supposed to be born in Bethlehem and they didn't know about Jesus' birth. But what about the temple guards, these uh, Levites who were put into that position? They went back to the Pharisees and the chief priests empty-handed. Check out what they said. Verse 45, finally the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked them, why did you not bring him in? And here's their answer. No one ever spoke the way that this man does, the guards declared. What did they think about Jesus? Well, we don't quite know, but what we do know is that they were blown away. They were enthralled by his teaching, so much so that in good conscience that they just, they just couldn't arrest him. What about the Pharisees themselves? Where did this leave them? They were left boxed in a corner. In verses 48 to 52, they just, they just lashed out. <laughs> they lashed out at everyone. They insulted the guards they, uh, they cursed the crowd. They called the crowd a mob that doesn't know anything about the law. And one, when one of their own, Nicodemus, spoke up and dared to suggest that maybe, just maybe, they should think about giving Jesus a fair hearing before judging him. Well, they insulted him as well. <laughs> Who are you, Nicodemus? Where did you come from? Do you come from Galilee as well? Like that man? Who is this man? When I call someone this man, it's usually because I don't know his name. 
which means that I, I barely know him. But we can know Jesus. You can know Jesus. You can know Jesus deeply. You can know Jesus personally. He doesn't have to be some uh, one who is remote, some mysterious figure or some person from ancient history who just started a world religion that happened to gain traction. No. If anyone is thirsty, shouted Jesus, let him come to me and drink so that streams of living water would flow from him. Let him trust in me. Let him believe in me, believe that I am the Christ, the one who would die for sin, the one who would rise again, the one who could so fill your life with forgiveness and hope and joy that you will be like one who, like, who's come from being like a parched desert to an oasis, filled with living water, streams of living water. Your life can be changed by putting your trust in Jesus. Who is this man? Have you put your trust in Jesus? Have you done that? Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we want to thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he uh, dared to confront the religious leaders of the time and in so doing has exposed so many false motives in order that we might actually be able to uh, put our trust in him and trust in him genuinely. Father, we thank you for his death on the cross and for his resurrection from the dead. And we pray that uh, each one of us would uh, trust in him and would love him with all our heart. In his name we pray. Amen.